0: Talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML.
1: Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Lisa Poleski and Dave Woodard are in the newsroom. Big Ben Strong is on the board. Is Canada's crisis still about COVID 19 or a neglected healthcare system? Here's Scott Thompson!
0: Late uh, this weekend, we heard some very sad news, and certainly unexpected. You know, uh, when you hear the likes of, of Betty White or or Sidney Poitier, I mean, these are people that that lived very long uh, in full lives. Bob Saget, though, I think took us all by surprise, uh, passing away over the weekend at the uh, age of 65, and of course, uh, Full House and America's Funniest Videos, uh, a stand-up career as well. Let's bring in Bill Brio, TV critic and author, Brio.tv, to find out more. He's with us now. Bill, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well.
2: Uh, Yeah, doing fine, Scott. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing good, thanks. So what do we know about this? 65, pretty young. Uh, was there any condition that we know of or any reason? This is totally unexpected.
2: Sounds pretty unexpected. I mean, in rooting around, his father died, not a relatively young person from a heart condition. Uh, maybe there's a family history. I'm guessing and speculating, so I don't really know. But, uh, no, I think everybody was pretty shocked by uh, this news.
0: Many are talking about uh, his his career on television, of course, a successful series with Full House, uh, videos, Future of Ted, How I Met Your Mother. Um, and, and But his persona on TV was, uh, especially with Full House and as the family dad, was kind of different from his stand-up, uh, from what I understand. And unfortunately, I've never really seen him do a lot of stand-up. Uh, but wasn't necessarily the character we saw, you know, Dan Tanner on Full House.
2: No, not at all. I did see him do stand-up many, many years ago at the Comedy Store in L.A., which could be a very dark place. It, you know, hmm. a lot of comedians back then, Bobcat Goldwaith or people, uh, you know, their, their acts yeah. were a little bit blue. And yeah, uh, yeah Saget was shocking. <laughs> like his jokes were filthy. Um, and if people, uh, there's a, there's a documentary there, The Aristocrats where they gathered many comedians, old school like Don Rickles and people, but Chris Rock, all kinds, to tell a variation of this filthy joke that comedians love uh, called The Aristocrats. And Saget was right in there and told it better than anyone. And uh, yeah, fellow comics just love the guy.
0: So was his stand-up act um, uh, uh, funny and 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 great simply because we, he had this persona of the family dad? Or was this all prior to uh, his family dad image? I mean, was he known for that?
2: You know, that's a good question. I know, um, reading about Norm Macdonald, that Norm Macdonald, one of the first, I think the first stand-up comedian McDonald ever saw growing up in Ottawa was Bob Saget. Hmm. And he was transformed from this experience and loved Bob Saget. So I don't know whether Saget was, his act was a bit blue back then or not. Um, But it certainly left an impression with uh, Norm MacDonald, who's very funny. There was a roast to Bob Saget that MacDonald was was the highlight for, one of those Comedy Central roasts. And uh, uh, MacDonald told some really corny jokes in a very slow way, almost daring people to laugh, but at the very end... Gave a very sincere tribute to Saget, saying how much he meant to him and and you're hearing a lot of comedians today doing the same kind of salute
0: which is very odd because the public that perhaps doesn't have that perception of him that of being uh, more the fatherly figure uh, is quite the opposite because we have heard several times he was really a comedian's comedian
2: yeah I know um, and even in terms of viewers, You know, I remember way back working at TV Guide, and he was on America's Funniest Home Videos as the host at the same time as Full House, I think. You know, like, and was on videos for many years and was just a very... And um, the guy, I mean, let's face it, he looks like a dentist, right, Bob yeah, yeah.
0: and And <laughs> you know what? Like, I really didn't experience much of his, well, any of his stand-up. So I only know him from videos and, and Full House. And I always thought it was kind of hokey and corny, yeah, which is which is, is huge, is totally, yeah, which was totally the opposite of what we're hearing about him now.
2: Yeah. And, and we're not really remembering him for this great sitcom, Full House. Yeah, know? yeah, I mean, yeah. It was, but it meant a lot, I think, to a generation. There's a you know, always when somebody dies, there's a pocket of years where if you were watching that show at that point, it means a lot to you. And this was one of those shows. I just I interviewed a guy, Ham, Hamza Haq is the star of uh, the Transplant, the CTV medical series, and he's 31, and he grew up in Saudi Arabia, and all day long on Saudi Arabia, when Ham, Hamza Haq was a kid. Was full house. It was on all the time. <laughs> yeah. So he ran into uh, Bob Saget at uh, an airport in Canada and at 14 ran over and had to have a picture taken with this guy because to him he was like the biggest star he'd ever met.
0: Why was he so successful on TV in the types of shows that he he was in? Why not branch him out? Because you, I, I think that's what would make it so funny is seeing Bob Saget doing something really blue. How come that part of his career never branched out?
2: You know, I don't know if it was by design, if he had a plan about his career. He did a bit of everything. You know, he was the narrator on How I Met Your Mother, mm. the, the voice looking back. He did a lot of animated voiceovers he had a long career like he never stopped working and a lot of it you know he would just show up and be on match game or he would be unmasked on the masked singer you know like he did um so much that was accessible to a wide audience and so maybe he didn't want to put himself into a a, an adult category that's the
0: brand yeah
2: you know he just enjoyed this wide audience
0: but it's funny because you look back at, you know, celebrating the life of Betty White last week. The, one of the things that was funny about Betty White, especially in her later years, is she would just say things that you would not speck, expect someone of her age to say, even when she was hosting Saturday Night Live. So that could have really worked for Bob Saget.
2: Yeah. I mean, Saturday, you know, they recently re-ran that Saturday Night episode. Yeah, I saw it. Yeah. yeah and, it, and it was all basically... Um, jokes about genitals
0: yeah <laughs> like, <laughs> but aren't you surprised aren't you surprised Bill at even looking at that show so I think she was 88 so it's yeah. a little over 10 years old how politically incorrect that show already is that it
2: episode. was a I really noticed that Scott I don't think yeah you could write that one today that no. The joke about the the PBS the the public radio announcers yeah. Enjoying the desserts? Uh, no, I don't think, they could, don't think they delicately put that. Bill. Yeah, I don't think they could get away with it, and and yeah, and also the cast was very white, and it was yeah. very curious watching that episode from just what twelve years ago, how different things are today, and you couldn't mount Saturday Night Live with that same cast i don't think
0: although keenan thompson in his early days on that yeah. show shows you how long he's been there and, and uh, what yeah. a stalwart he now is in that show
2: yeah well he's one of the greats of that show of all time he's just funny yeah every time very true all right bill brio
0: with us brio.tv tv critic and author talking about the passing of bob saget bill as always thanks so much for the time be
2: well you too scott
0: New research out of the Angus Reid Institute. Three in five Canadians want less trade with China, but many express their concerns about the economic risk that comes with taking such a stand. Let's bring in Dave Krasinski, Research uh, Research Director with Angus Reid, and with us now. Dave, thanks for the time. I hope you're well.
3: Thanks, Scott. Uh, Happy New Year. I haven't talked to you yet in 2022, so I hope everyone's doing well.
0: Absolutely. And back at you. Uh, I remember at the very beginning of this pandemic and in and, and talking to various researchers and the overall view of the the Chinese Communist Party had really dropped. People's view of, mm-hmm. of China, I think, like 90% were, were not happy with it, 90% of Canadians. Uh, what are you seeing now at this stage? Uh, Canadians are realizing perhaps less trade, but now they're sort of caught in the middle. Um, uh, what's changed here?
3: Yeah, you know, it's interesting in that that kind of top-line number that you're referencing there, we did have, yeah, only 8% of Canadians saying that they viewed China favorably. Um, but that was pre-release uh, of the two Michaels. And what we, what we saw actually was that um, favorability, it's still incredibly low. I mean, among the, the lowest that Canadians have of any country down there with, you know, uh, Saudi Arabia and, and, and other countries that Canadians are very critical of for human rights purposes Um about sixteen percent of people view China favorably now, but the you know the challenge there is that China does represent you know more than a hundred billion dollars worth of overall trade every year. Um, so I think there's this tension in both in the government um, because of some of the ongoing issues and the tensions that have been really occupying a lot of the the federal government's time over the last couple of years uh, and also in in the Canadian population where, People are really talking about, you know, what is the best way to handle this relationship? Is, is China a trading partner that we want to keep um, you know, diversifying trade with and expanding trade with because it is such a rich market um, for a lot of those Canadian purposes? But there's a real tension. People are pushing back and saying, "I don't know if if, if that's the best plan." Um, so yeah, there's there's a lot of very interesting conversations going on right now, and and that continues today with Canada announcing that their pursuit of a uh, deeper trade links with Taiwan, which is not going to uh, play well in Beijing.
0: So again, what you've just said, uh, that, uh, plays into all of this. It appears Canada is taking a stronger stand, a stance. Is that the way to do it through allies rather than just saying, well, they're so powerful now. We really can't do anything. Uh, is, is this what they have to do? You know, work to collaborate with, uh, with allies and unite people on this.
3: I think so. And I think if you if you look at the, the Canada-China trade portfolio, it is relatively diverse. You know, there's some good data on the Government of Canada website just about how many different um, markets can, Canadian uh, businesses are engaged with in China and the fact that, you know, there there isn't one overall dominant kind of uh, trade relationship that Canadians have with the country. It's it's a bunch of uh, smaller uh, industries that, that Canadians are trading with. So it I think what Canadians want to see and what largely comes out in the data is, you know, 60% of Canadians would like to see Canada trade less with China. They might not be saying that they want to knock it off completely, but they do like the idea of looking at, you know, where you can, you can kind of fill some gaps and where you might be able to minimize that relationship and that dependence because the, the reality of some of the actions of the Chinese communist party, um, uh, really real, really troublesome to people in, in this country and if you ask them about that trade-off you do get considerable cross-party uh agreement that um when canadians look at the, the relationship between the two countries they think it's a, more important for canada to stand up for human rights and the rule of law than it is to look for trade and investment opportunities um particularly getting conservatives to say that at such a high level, 72% agreeing that human rights and the rule of law should be the kind of governing, guiding light there. Um, I think that's a really powerful statement about what the Canadian public is looking at. Um, They're looking past uh, the uh, the investment opportunities and and the fact that it is such a a rich market to to be engaged in for, for Canadian companies.
0: It is interesting to see how this discussion is changing just since the new year, because you know, again, it seems Canadians, you know, they want to take a stand here, want to do the right thing, but oh, geez, the cost of doing so uh, is too high, which basically means we're now too dependent on them. They become too interwoven in our co- in our uh, in our economies and what have you that we can't take a stand on this now. We've lost that opportunity,
3: have we? Yeah, and you you really see that in that question of, okay, you know, you say that you want Canada to stand up and and do what, what, you know, the government thinks is right or stand up for democratic norms and uh, make a statement about, you know, the, the hostage situation that essentially was the the rest of the two Michaels, um, the genocide of the Uyghur Muslim uh, minority population that is getting a lot of attention, uh, a number of different issues uh, and you see, you know, all, basically three in five Canadians saying that they're worried about what it would mean to take that step. So they want to do it, but they are concerned about the fact that it is, you know, $77 billion worth of imports. Um, I think, though, if, if you can work with... with is that saying, partners,
0: Dave, that... Are, are you saying, Dave, is this saying that, Dave, it's too late?
3: Um, I, I Not necessarily. I, I, I don't think that's what... Um, I think that Canadians are, are saying that you know, we've got to start at some time. I think maybe if you were to ask a question of should we have been doing this and and really, you know, pursuing diversification rather than building the relationship, which has been a real concerted effort on the government's behalf uh, in in recent decades, uh, I think Canadians are looking back and saying, you know, maybe that wasn't the best path and maybe we should have been seeing what other allies in the ACN we can uh, really build with uh, rather than China. So I think there's probably frustration that uh, there hasn't been a ton of action taken yet, but a sense that you know now is as good a time as any.
0: It's amazing how opinions have changed, because I remember back in the 80s, the 90s, early 2000s, I mean, China was the golden goose. nobody, Everybody couldn't wait to get in, and now, boy, the whole thing uh, has spun around. I mean, the golden goose still may be there, but the perception of it certainly has changed. Yeah, Dave,
3: it's, it's interesting to know how that changes in public opinion, too, because even the as close as you know, 2015, there were a considerable portion of Canadians who said, "You know, China is the way to go. We've got to keep building." Uh, when Trump came in, uh, there was some pressure to move away from the U.S., and now Canadians like the idea of moving back there. There's these things do change often, um, and I think it's important, you know, to get the opinions of Canadians. But you know, they're we're not the ones making those decisions, and uh, there are considerable economic consequences. So it's an interesting uh, issue to be watching here in 2022.
4: Dave
0: Korsinsky, with us, research director with the Angus Reid Institute. Dave, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks, Scott. You too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. PJ Marcani, CEO of Carmen's Group. Great article in The Spectator uh, in the last few days. You can find it on their website. Time for a referendum on lockdowns. PJ Marcani with us now. PJ, thanks for the time. I hope you're well.
4: well. Thank you, Scott. Great to be on.
0: I don't want to ask you how business is, because I can only imagine how that is. Everybody knows somebody who's got a wedding or something has been canceled several times now. But what are your thoughts? Is this discussion changing now that we are all vaccinated?
4: I do think it's changing, and I think you nailed it. Right now, I think a lot more people are aware that the root cause of this is the lack of health care infrastructure, and specifically beds, ICU beds, and, and the support staff around it. And I think now more people are waking up to the fact that we need to find another way to solve for the problem than to to lock down society and penalize small businesses and penalize students uh you know we we all when everybody got vaccinated you know we had a hope that there was a return to some semblance of normalcy uh and now here we are 2 years later we're one of the most vaccinated jurisdictions in uh, in the world and and um and we were told the vaccines were going to work against severe hospitalization and here we are again. Uh, so it's certainly, you know, frustrating that we're in this position. And, you know, speaking of the business, you know, it's been a, a roller coaster uh, for, you know, for two years for our, our staff, for our customers. We've had some some customers have to reschedule their wedding six, seven times now. It's getting Man. out of hand. And and we want to, you know, we can offer safe venues uh, and, and, and safe scenarios for them to to host their events. So, it's frustrating all around. And I think it's time for some fresh thinking uh, for the prom to, to, you know, think outside of the box uh, and and to start, you know, looking at new ways of dealing with this pandemic.
0: Well, we realize now, I think, PJ, we can live with this. It's not a case of running from it anymore, especially yeah. when you have such a high vaccination rate, as you were speaking of. There's a way to do this.
4: Absolutely. And, and you know, and, and I think living with the reality that COVID is here is is a necessary shift that everybody needs to make. You know, we've never eradicated the flu, the cold, but we've managed it. We've been able to live within the world uh, and and deal with it. And I think similarly, it's time that, you know, that society learns to, I don't want to say normalize COVID, but learns to accept that it's here uh, and to live with it. You know, you had mentioned, Scott, that you had, you know, you had unfortunately suffered COVID. My family Uh, COVID ran through our family, you know, mid-December, right before the holidays. So, you know, we lived it. And and, and I'll be honest, I've had flus that that were more severe in the past, and and not discounting the fact that COVID isn't, uh, you know, a serious issue. It is. But, you know, we need to now start to look at other ways of going on with life or else we risk, we really do risk being in the same scenario a year from now, in 2024, 2025, and 2026, uh, whenever there's surges and flare-ups.
0: And, you know, and I'm not sure the public realizes how this discussion has changed, because a year ago it was, we have no vaccine, we don't know if we're going to die from this or not. And now that's not the issue anymore. What we're, we're, we're not protecting the, da- the, 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 the population from the dangers of COVID-19. We're protecting a very fragile and rightly so, a very fragile health care system that needs a formula funding change. And, you know, as soon as COVID subsides, if we don't change this, nothing will change. It'll just, we'll keep having the same lineups for a hip replacement or this, that, or the other. I mean, we need wholesale changes from the top down.
4: Absolutely. And right now, and what a lot of people don't realize is that before the pandemic, hospitals in Ontario were at 96% occupancy. They were fragile before COVID hit. And when yeah. you look at, when you look at hospital infrastructure beds, uh, in Canada and in Ontario, in Canada, Canada ranks amongst the, I was shocked to learn this, uh, that Canada ranks amongst the lowest of developed countries for hospital beds per capita. Australia and Greece have twice as many beds as Canada per capita. Germany has four times. Japan has six times as many beds. So their infrastructure is much, um, you know, better built. And Ontario, relative to the rest of Canada, I think right now, 800 residents. there's 800 residents per ICU bed in Ontario, whereas the East Coast, I think it's around 500 residents per bed in uh, Manitoba. So Ontario is the worst in Canada, and Canada is amongst the worst in the world. So this is really, when you look at the root cause, the root cause is the lack of, of infrastructure. And this is where I think right now, we need real policy innovation. We need appropriate resource allocation with the hundreds of billions of dollars in new debt that our governments, both provincially and nationally, have incurred.
5: Yeah. We could have built
4: many, many hospitals across the country to deal with this. We could have, you know, appropriately resourced them uh, and, and you know, and, and still saved a lot of money, saved small businesses from going under. You know, when I heard that the show come from a way just to declare bankruptcy... You know, it broke my heart because that's a beautiful Canadian story and beautiful production. But the ramifications are being felt not just in in sectors like hospitality, but, you know, wellness centers, gyms, performing arts, uh, you know, other types of retail businesses. Uh, You know, there's so many businesses suffering as a result of these lockdowns and and students are suffering. You know, I've got young kids. My, my, My family and friends have kids. Their normal routines and rhythms are out of sync. And so... The mental health toll that we're putting on society again, the small businesses that have suffered already uh, at the hands of these lockdowns, you know, enough is enough. There's, I think there's a general sentiment that enough is enough. And, and Scott, the feedback I received from my article has been overwhelming in its, in its diversity, uh, where I've had hospital employees, executives within the healthcare system reach out to me saying they agree with me. I've had politicians, mm. I've had business people. Community organizations all reach out. So I think there's starting to be a universal, you know, acknowledgement that, you know, that we want to see a change. We need to do something different because the same old, same old isn't working. And Einstein had that famous line about what the definition of insanity is, and we're living it. You know, yeah. we're doing the same thing and expecting a different result. It's not going to work. Time to focus Pe- on the root cause and do something different.
0: PJ Marcani, with the CEO of Carmen's Group, and you can read his uh, column, Time for a Referendum on Lockdowns, in your Hamilton Spectator. Thanks, PJ. Good luck moving forward. Thank you, Scott. Cheers. Making their way around the virtual big round table is Lisa Puleski and Dave Woodard. Hello, table heads. Good to have you all here today. Hope you're all doing well. Happy
1: Monday. Yes, indeed.
0: Oh, I forgot it was Monday. Thanks for reminding me Any of time. that, Dave. <laughs> there you go all right uh we heard over the weekend late over the weekend that uh bob Saget had passed away uh and only 65 years of age obviously uh, last week it was betty white and and sydney poiche who were obviously ha- had lived much longer and uh and well both i think uh well uh yeah 90s uh, almost 100 and certainly 95 bob Saget, only 65 known for full house america's videos and stand up how are you going to best remember, Bob Saget, is the poll question of the day on our Twitter page. You know, I um, uh, I never really saw a lot of his stand-up. I didn't see any of his stand-up. I, I haven't seen any of Bob Saget's stand-up, really, so I only know him from Full House in America's videos. So I have a very... Um, uh, uh, Wholesome? Wholesome? wholesome opinion of Bob Saget, <laughs> but I hear his stand-up was absolutely raunchy, so now I have to go back and look at that, because th- that'll be quite the uh, uh, quite the difference. But Dave, let's start with you. What are your thoughts? Uh, what are you going to remember this guy for? Uh,
6: the first thing you need to do, Scott, is you need to Google uh, Dave Chappelle and Bob Saget, and that should give you everything that you need oh, right man. there. Oh, man. Well,
0: Dave Chappelle, I've seen plenty of. Uh, he's sharing a stage with uh, Bob Not, Saget? There, it wasn't
6: a stage. It was part of the Dave Chappelle show. But at any rate, you watch that and you'll get a good idea of some of the stand-up stuff It was very raunchy um, and and to be honest, as as much as I, I enjoyed watching Full House when I was a kid, as much as I loved to watch America's Funniest Home Videos before YouTube was out, uh, I think that the the big thing that I will be reminded of with Bob Saget is that raunchy stand up, and maybe even some of the comedy networks' uh, uh, roast that he was a part of, because mm. it, it's it's shocking when your when your childhood is all about how wholesome <laughs> and good this guy is. And then you see him on a stage saying things you could never believe would come out of his mouth. So I think that to me... Uh, it is going to be the the thing that sticks in my mind the most about Bob Saget.
0: I was talking to Bill Brio, TV critic, about this last hour, and you know the discussion we had is why didn't we see that side of him more on TV? And and you know Bill said obviously he's he's protecting or may have been protecting an image here. But you know again it reminds you of Betty White what made her so funny, especially in the latter years, where you was because you didn't expect this lady to be saying that. So uh, it, are you are you surprised he didn't venture there uh, with his career date?
6: No, I, I'm not because I. You have to also think about you know TV in the early '90s and yeah. uh, and the late '80s and and if you wanted to get on, I mean it wasn't long ago where Janet Jackson pretty much her career was destroyed yeah. because of a, yep. a wardrobe malfunction on national television. So, yep. uh, I mean if you think about it, you know even going beyond that, it, it's no it's no shock that if you know Bob Saget wanted a. Uh, Wanted to get any kind of paycheck, that he would have to go definitely go down the, the G aisle. Yeah. Uh, what about you, Lisa? How are you going to remember Bob Saget?
1: Oh yeah, very much the same. I mean, I, I was uh, I was a kid in the early '90s when Full House was on. Not to make anyone feel old, but that, you know, the, I I wouldn't have been exposed to his raunchier yeah. side of comedy because I was just not of the age. Like when I was a kid, we would watch America's Funniest Home Videos, and that would be that was like Dave said earlier, that was YouTube before YouTube. Like that was that where you saw all those blooper things. So you don't have those shows nowadays. But yeah. I remember hearing, I think my first exposure to realizing that he was not the wholesome uh, like, <laughs> image that I knew him for was hearing about his aristica- aristocrats yes. joke,
7: um, yes. which
1: was apparently uh, in that movie was he had like the worst one. Um, and I never saw the movie, but I had to like look up each of the different jokes because I was just morbidly.
0: I'm gonna have to do that now because uh, yeah, I've completely got the Ron Bob Saget or certainly the yeah. Well, I, think maybe I maybe I should stay with a wholesome view. I don't.
1: That's know. I was saying that it, it would be like if you saw Mister Rogers starting like <laughs> le- letting out and unleashing so many like swears. It would just be so shocking. Just in my childhood, no. So maybe Speaking, maybe protect speak-
0: it. Speaking of old, I remember comedy albums. National Lampoon used to do comedy albums, and they did a great version of Mr. Rogers. I'll, I'll let that one be, and you can look that up. All right, well, Ben, what are your thoughts on Bob Saga? What are your memories?
6: This is my first time hearing that he's got any sort of non-wholesome aspect. That's the same so as me, yeah. I'm discovering, this is like finding out that a teacher at school can do a keg stand <laughs> or something. That's I had no person. idea about this. Wow. A teacher can do a what? A keg stand. You know, a keg of beer, but please put... tell me
1: you know what a keg stand a keg stand is, Scott.
6: Um, I don't. Oh. So, so imagine I you don't. do a handstand, only your hands are on either side of a keg of beer, and somebody would then be holding your legs up on t- like behind you, and they'd put the pump in your mouth and you'd see how much you can go. Okay, maybe
0: we called it something different back then. <laughs> All right.
6: Uh... <laughs> <laughs> let's
0: <laughs> let's move on uh has the discussion changed around covid-19 i had an interesting discussion with pj marcati from the carmens group wrote a piece in the spec uh last week um is this about and, and i think a lot of people are realizing especially with a very high vaccination rate in canada is this still about the dangers of covid-19 on canadians or is this about the dangers of a neglected healthcare funding formula that is unsustainable? Because it seems we're, we're still banging about lockdowns and mandatory vaccines and getting the last 10% of the population vaccinated. When really at this point, it's, it's about the healthcare system. What are your thoughts? We'll start with you, Dave.
6: I think that this is a, a problem that it, it it it's been there since before covid nineteen I think you know we've there to talk for years, about, yeah, we used to talk about bad flu years and how we just weren't really uh ready for any kind of um any kind of issues with intensive care units i mean every year it seemed like we do a story talking about how icus are at over capacity and i don't know if it's necessarily about a funding formula i do know it's about you know healthcare and how we prioritize that money uh and it's something that needed to be addressed long long before covid 19 got here and now it's just one of those things that we're trying i think to throw money at it but to be honest with you i'm not sure if we know where to throw it properly
0: yeah i think it's a- system. I don't think it's a money issue. Now, obviously, it needs more money, but uh, I think there's systemic issues here. What are your thoughts, Lisa? Uh, Is this about COVID-19 and how dangerous it is to you personally, or is it about crippling our healthcare system?
1: Well, it's definitely had a, you know, there's no doubt that it's really shed light on how Mm -hmm. fragile our our healthcare system is, and I think a lot of people were saying that before the pandemic really got underway, they said Mm -hmm. this is going to really expose the cracks, Um, but I I don't think that necessarily it's it's something that can be changed easily like you know it it, it is not necessarily just funding uh, adding more funding in certain ways, but there are parts of the healthcare system that have always been volu- I mean we don't have universal pharmacare. our teeth we, we, that's like a, an essential part of our, our health. you know we eat with our teeth, yet dental care is not something that's covered. You know? but
0: again, you know we can't get this right and no yeah you know so how can we do the rest? And I'm all for all of what you're just saying, but it's like we you know we sound good, we brag about this system all the time because it's universal, but it's not sustainable.
1: No, but I mean, uh, what is we have to look at the alternatives, too, and the pitfalls and the cautionary tales that we see of systems that are the completely opposite. I and, and I'm not saying yeah, uh, yeah. do
0: the opposite or privatize it in any way uh, or, or do the exact opposite. I think there's a compromise here. I think there's a, a sweet spot, and we have not been able to find it, even with a 90% uh, vaccination rate. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. I really do think the whole discussion on COVID-19 and how we address it is really changing. And I think it's changing because as the majority, vast majority, uh, over 90% in Ontario with the first dose that are eligible, 12 plus, plus, uh, and high 80s for the second. So as you think about that, uh, 90% of the people in Ontario are vaccinated, yet we're still in lockdown situation. We're still keeping our kids out of school. Is this about protecting you and me from getting a disease, which I've already had, by the way, double vaccinated? Is it about that and keeping us healthy? Or is it about taxing an already overstressed system that we've been burning out and running full open uh, for the last two years? And now we are seeing the cracks in the system. And rather than addressing the cracks in that system, we're... We're berating the last five or ten percent of the population to get vaccinated, making it mandatory as if this will solve our health care issues. Is it still about COVID nineteen? Or is it now about canada's funding formula and a neglected health care system let's bring in dr sean watley uh, a practicing physician author of when politics comes before patients and why and how canadian medicare is failing uh, and is with a or also a senior fellow with the mcdonald laurier institute uh, dr sean watley with us now uh, do, uh doctor thank you for the time hope you're doing well
5: yeah you also i can't you, you had covid and you're better i mean that's fantastic
0: Yeah. And, um, I've, I've run into lots of people who have had, who've been vaccinated and got, and, and certainly got the milder version of it and moved on. Is this discussion still about how COVID-19 affects us? Or is this about, uh, avoiding the discussions of a neglected funding formula that is, is, is keeping our healthcare system in, in, in a position of unsustainability?
5: Well, the way you set it up was just perfect. So you said, listen, we're all focusing on the va- on the infection and we're not looking at the system. I think the challenge here is to keep both things in mind at the same time. And it's very, very hard, right? We have to walk and chew gum. So on the one hand, we have a virus. However, I think we're working hard, right? People are staying home, washing their hands, wearing masks, getting vaccines, doing everything they can possibly do. At the same time, we now need to return our attention to the healthcare system, which has been suffering for decades. And so kudos to you for raising it on your show.
0: It's it has has the has the mode moved from living uh, uh, from trying to fight this and running away from it to living with it, and can these same measures be used? I mean, I'm fully vaccinated. I support. I hope everybody does, but I, I just think at this point we're neglecting focusing on the healthcare system funding formula and 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 letting the the politics of COVID nineteen take over the discussion.
5: Well, as you know, every virus goes from pandemic to endemic, which means it hits us hard, makes us all sick. But then eventually, humans learn to live with it. And so we're hoping that we're into that phase. Certainly, I I published an article, co-authored it last fall. in in the mainstream media saying that we need to learn how to live with it. So that's on one side of the coin. But on the other hand, too, to your point, we need to start looking at funding. So currently, Ottawa is only paying for 22% of what the provinces spend on health care. As you remember... Back in the days when the, when the federal government was trying to entice the provinces to build health care systems, they said, hey, you build hospitals, we'll pay 50%. You provide services in hospitals, we'll pay 50%. You now start paying for medical care, we'll pay 50%. So the 50% deal ended with the first Trudeau government in 1977. Yeah, I'm yeah. starting to geek out, geek out on you, so I better stop there.
0: Oh, but you bring a very valid point because Canadians are very quick to brag about that. But it's like they remember the 1950s, but forget the 70s, 80s, 90s, and everything. That, whoops! Everything that came after that. Um, so uh, you know, at, at one point we seem to be bragging about this healthcare system, yet we're neglecting or failing to understand that it's not sustainable. We and we brag because it's universal, and that's great. It's universal, but yeah. how about sustainability?
5: Right. Well, we were rock stars in the early 1970s, right? We had way more beds than we had sick people to put in them. Average age in the 1960s was in your mid-20s. Average age now in Ontario the last 10 years is in your mid-40s. But to your point, so the Canada Health Act, first three principles, comprehensive, universal, portable. Everybody loves that, right? I want to get care for everything that makes me sick every single citizen or person in the country no matter where you travel in the country so those are wonderful principles i think everybody agrees on them but the fourth principle publicly administered oh no wait a second the government has to take care of everything all of it only the government can run it and then the last uh, criteria the a is for accessible which is really a way to say hospitals can't charge user fees so there's huge opportunity if the politicians really want to dig into this and say okay Maybe there's an appetite within voters to start looking at this. There's two Medicare's out there, the one we dream about and the one that exists in reality. We need to start focusing on the reality.
0: Boy, our heads are stuck in the 1950s, that's for sure. Why do the provinces seem to be getting all of the heat and not the feds when initially they were paying half and now less than 25 percent?
5: Well, it's a classic, right? Who's who's on first? Who's on second? Who's the boss? Who's, who's yeah. the who's who's the chief, and who's the bottle washer? So, the federal government enticed the provinces to set up these systems. They said, hey, we're going to pay you 50%, right? Hospital Insurance and Diagnostic Services Act, or even before that, the hospital fundings grant in 1948, then 1957, 1966, Medical Care Act. But then, oh my gosh, the services went through the roof, all these empty beds, people were getting put in them to get their x-rays or whatever, and the federal government said, whoa, we can't pay for this. Even at that point, they weren't paying 50%. Then they switched to block grants, and they said, okay, here's block grants, and we'll give you a little bit of extra for growth. And that's what the provinces and the federal government have been fighting about since that time. Uh, So in the late 70s, provinces started charging user fees, and some of the doctors, up to 2% of them, started charging extra billing, right? And the media went crazy. Then as an election ploy in 1984, the first Trudeau government said, hey, let's put forward the Canada Health Act and we can entice the Conservatives to vote against it. Conservatives didn't take the bait. Mulroney won by the biggest landslide in Canadian history. And that's where we're left with. We're left with this straitjacket where the provinces are responsible, but yet the federal government gets to call the shots. And so who do we blame?
0: Uh, can Can the Prime Minister continually say it's not our responsibility? How long can you get away with that without changing something?
5: Well, technically, he's right. I mean, we go back to the Constitution Act. But, but that's not the of- spirit
0: of how this started, and that's not exactly. what everybody thinks. Everybody thinks, still thinks we're in the 1950s, and they're paying half. They're not paying, you know, they're paying 25% no. or less
5: exactly so i I wrote a big paper for mli saying we need to decide in 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 healthcare we talk about the mrp the most responsible physician or the most responsible provider now who gets sued when something bad happens we need an mrp for healthcare the most responsible politician is it the feds is it the provinces because until you do patients are held hostage in the middle
0: Dr. Sean Watley with us. Obviously, a discussion we're not going to solve right here. Practicing physician, (laughs) author of When Politics Comes Before Patients, Why and How Canadian Medicare is Failing. We will chat again, doctor. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. We've talked of late uh, a lot about uh, China and our relationship with it. Earlier on today, uh, a guest from Angus Reid saying uh, in, in a recent survey, most Canadians want less trade with China, although are concerned uh what might happen as a result of that. Uh Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolly has been quoted as saying that Canada is looking for a new strategy in dealing with China. Uh also the same person that said that the two Michaels were on parole. But uh we'll talk more about that later. Let's bring in Elliot Tepper, Professor of Political Science, Carleton University, with us now. Elliot, is always, great to have you here. Happy New Year to you.
8: Thank you and happy new year to you, Scott.
0: So uh, what's different today with the uh, foreign affairs minister saying what she has said? What's different today than before?
8: What's different is that it's finally become announced that Canada's working on an Indo-Pacific strategy. Uh, it is part of her mandate letter. I've read the mandate letter. Uh, <laughs> they're full of government, uh, bureaucratic kind of talk, political talk, but uh, one, of, one of the very specific... References in her mandate from the prime minister, who has appointed her, is to develop an Indo-Pacific strategy. This is actually not new. I've been picking up comments about this since at least, I don't know, last April, Scott. It's been underway. Uh, I think NATO and the EU have already come out with one. The, I think there's a secretariat now set up quietly inside uh, Foreign Affairs. There's very senior uh, people, very knowledgeable people about Asia, working specifically on this Indo-Pacific strategy. So uh, I, I noticed she said, well, it's going to come any day or any month now.
0: Hmm. Uh, most want in this Angus Reid survey, anyway, said most want uh, less reduction, a reduction of uh, trade with China businesses, and, and obviously could lend into this. Uh, but are very concerned that they'll be bullied. So, how do you balance that? How do you? Is it about getting help from your allies, or is it too late yeah. now?
8: Well, Canada and the Prime Minister has emphasized this as well in regard to this Indo-Pacific strategy but also, of course, because the two Michaels, is that we need to work with partners. That's one of Canada's great strengths is multilateralism and how to use it effectively for Canadian ends. Uh, certainly, the case of the two Michaels, that was mobilized. But out of that, uh, that uh, the various polls, Angus Reed just being the most recent, has shown that over the time period, I don't know, about when the Michaels, two Michaels were... Uh, arrested on, on yeah. bogus charges, but about in that era, the opinion of China has just gone down. Canada has played a role in that, uh, and certainly inside Canada you see that, but that's uh, that's true across the world and a lot of places, and it's uh, it's because, in part, we have played a role in it, but also China has been acting like a bully. Uh, this The Xi Jinping regime has said no more hide your strength and bide your time, uh, which was Deng Xiaoping's mantra. You know, we'll grow strong, but don't scare people with it. He's saying we're ready. And wolf warrior diplomacy, which you and I have discussed in the past, is now there. So what's happened in Hong Kong and uh, has really raised a lot of uh, awareness. What's happened to the Uyghurs? And then that reminds people about what happened in Tibet. So remember, Canada has passed a resolution pretty well unanimously that uh, there's genocide going on in, in uh, Xinjiang. Uh, and there's a special was a special committee set up in parliament specifically to deal with China. So what to do about a China that is here as a de facto superpower has basically taken over the South China Sea, uh, which it has historically no claim to, and is a threat, therefore, to the... Um, I'll give you some vocabulary because the Indo-Pacific is a fairly new concept uh, brought into prominence when Prime Minister Abe went to the parliament in New Delhi and said in 27, you know, there's a confluence of the two oceans and we have to work together. That's India on one side and Japan on the other side. Well, you know, this is clearly aimed at what to do about China.
0: Uh, is china trying to change this uh, perception of them in canada we're hearing all kinds of interference that they've had in past elections trying to get uh, especially chinese canadians from spreading this sort of message uh, uh what is china's reaction to this change in stance
8: Well, china has basically said either you're with us or against us in response to the article you're discussing uh, do, do you want to be a partner or don't you do you want to be an enemy so they, they're saying uh, we're here. Um, they're not saying let bygones be let bygones. They're not apologizing in any way, but they're saying, and I, and I think this is an important point, they're saying, okay, now it's time for Canada to decide. And I think that is what's coming to a head right now. I think Canada is at an inflection point in its dealings with China and more broadly uh, with the Indo Pacific. The other term I was going to use is free and open Indo Pacific, which has come along. As part of the new emerging vocabulary. You have to have freedom of the siege there and rule of law, and you can't let China close it off. So we are at an inflection point. The two Michaels are back. We've not announced what we're going to do with Huawei. Uh, our Five Eyes partners, four out of the five, have said we're not going to let Huawei be part of our uh, 5G infrastructure. Canada has not yet made an announcement, even though the two Michaels are back. There's a vacancy in the ambassadorship to China. There's some... Uh, public pressure, public commentary in the press saying, well, let's this time, let's appoint a professional Canadian diplomat. Some names, very interesting names, people I happen to know um, uh, have been put forward. So we are at an inflection point with China. And therefore, the Indo-Pacific strategy uh, is part of that. And why are we waiting? I suspect, Scott, that we're waiting because the U.S. hasn't made itself clear. As to uh, what we've he only wants got about and hey that's We've got what, less you know. Uh, that's
0: us we've got less we've got less than a minute left here elliot i want to ask you sure. is melanie Jolie qualified to be the foreign affairs minister Absolutely, um Absolutely. the
8: prime it, minister appointed her
0: <laughs> <laughs> because i'm going back to you know a few months ago weeks ago when we were asking yes. if uh you know why the two michaels hadn't spoken why we haven't heard from them and she said well they're under parole there she used yeah. the word parole and then never we never heard anything more about it is she well, actually
8: unfortunately we did because the very shortly after that, the Chinese then had said, I think their their ambassador here said, oh yes, right, they're on parole. And we hadn't heard that, and the people who watch it very, very closely said, say what? Uh, they used more pungent language. So, yeah. the um, uh, this is our, what, fifth foreign minister in six years? The, the foreign policy of Canada is ultimately uh, set by the prime minister. The gravitas of the of the person holding that position clearly matters. Uh, Mark Garneau had gravitas. But we'll have to see if um, hmm. our new foreign minister can earn her way into that kind of gravitas. But she does speak for Canada.
0: Elliot Tepper with us, political science professor, Carleton University. Elliot, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time. Be well.
8: Yeah, and to you. Take care.
0: We've been talking at length uh, over the course of the show. Is this still about the dangers of COVID-19 or is it the dangers of of a woefully inadequate health care system that is in need of a new funding formula that had problems long before COVID-19 existed. So here we are as a uh, one of the highest vaccinated countries in the world, and instead of focusing on our health care system and what it needs and the exhausted professionals and, and, and workforce behind it, we're, you know, we're talking about making, you know, the provinces should be making this mandatory. We should be holding people down and making sure they all get vaccinated. And, and I'm all for vaccination. I'm there. But how much more can we do? And instead of focusing on lockdowns and reacting, why aren't we focusing on the issue? And that is we've got a healthcare system that can no longer keep up. And COVID-19 has exposed this for all to see. When this started, the federal government paid half. The provinces paid half. Now the feds pay less than 25% of that. And there's all their more complicated formulas that dilute the whole issue. How do we get back to where we were. Bring in Dr. James Teason, Director, Master of Health Administration, Community Care, Associate Professor at the Ted Rogers School of Management, Ryerson University, and with us now. Doctor, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am fine, thanks. And how about yourself, Scott? I'm really wound up about this. I've been knocking glasses off the desk since this started. Are, is this discussion changing, Doctor, from uh, you know running for our lives and, and hiding from this disease as opposed to learning to live with it?
7: I think we are going to have to learn to live with it. Um, And this is gonna go on for years. We're gonna have variants and our full system is going to have to figure out how to manage it and get used to it.
0: How do we? What are some of the options moving forward? We know about the problems. We can point to it all. It's it's in front of our faces now. Uh, is it about the federal government offering more money, getting it back up to fifty? Is it about the provinces being better? I mean, if the feds can't pay for it, how can the provinces pay for it? Is it a balance of private? What are some of the options we have?
7: Well, one of the the problems obviously is when federal and provincial responsibilities were you know, set more than a hundred years ago, healthcare wasn't a big deal and the provinces are saddled with it now. So certainly the provinces could use more help as it's become, um, just more expensive as you're suggesting. But I don't think that um, just getting more money is going to be enough. What, what do we need? <laughs> well, <clears throat> I think one of the lessons, as you you were saying, um, this um, pandemic has really exposed um, issues in our healthcare system. I really don't want us to forget the problems in long-term care. That was the message early, Mm -hmm. and I really hope we run with that. That sector certainly needs more money. Um, And hospitals, as as you're suggesting, are exposed. There's almost no no slack in the system. They're running at um, full capacity. So obviously one way to fix that would be to certainly build more capacity but i think what we really have to do is one of the solutions is to make sure that we just get better support for home care keep people out of hospitals keep people out of long term care that sector really needs boosting
0: uh again this all costs money
7: if the feds can't pay for it how do the provinces well the, for the provinces um, <clears throat> There, well, the, the problems is going to have to get more, get some money from the feds. I, I don't, I don't disagree with that. One of the problems with getting more transfers is, not historically, what that has ended up doing is, it's ended up um, a lot of the money's been directed towards paying people in the system more, which they many deserve. I'm not questioning that, but it doesn't necessarily increase capacity. But the The provinces have to figure out some way of adding any extra funds that go into the system should be going to home care. If you even think about it, look at Scott, if you think of um, when the provinces threw up their hands about PCR testing, they basically said last couple of weeks, we can't handle the capacity. So what's the response? Well, it's um we'll try to get a hold of some rapid tests and mm-hmm. do your tests at home. So I think that's just an example of one way you can um, we, we don't have enough tests, obviously, but I think that if we can keep people out of hospitals with proper support, um, the province will need some more money to do that. Um, it's a more efficient way of. Addressing the issues that you've uh, that you're talking about,
0: uh, we hear over and over again, and it's obvious uh, <laughs> why. But the healthcare staff is burnt out; they're fried. Many are leaving, not coming back. They're losing uh, people that have have tenure and have been there for a while, have experience. The younger people don't want to get involved. How do we? Uh, and obviously, now that they're getting sick too, They've, <laughs> there's absenteeism there, as there is in every industry. How do we recruit more into the healthcare industry, you know, how do we make this an industry that people want to be a part of? I mean, my goodness, it's healthcare. You should be proud to be a part of this. We should be, people should be lining up to get this job.
7: Well, my understanding is it's pretty competitive to get into nursing programs these days. And obviously med schools are, um, really hard to get into. I think there's a lot, the young people do want to go into the sector who knows what this post pandemic, I guess call it endemic, um, economy is going to look like, but healthcare is going to be obviously a source of employment um, for young people and good careers. Um, and, and this is why if our program, we're focusing on community care. Um, that's got to be a more attractive profession to attract good people. So I, I, I'm not that concerned about the, um, the pipeline, but um, certainly we might need some more spaces in our universities and colleges to train people because it is it is a terrific prof- profession um, under strain, um, but there are heroes. They're sticking it out, and it's a satisfying career for most people. Not saying it's easy, but um, a lot of young people still want to do this.
0: Uh, do you think as a result of COVID-19, you know, I've asked many industry mm-hmm. uh, industries what they'll do different if things that they are doing now will stick coming out the other end of this? Mm-hmm. Do you think this will finally be the catalyst that makes some change to the healthcare system? Because we brag about it all the time <laughs> because it's universal, but we don't talk about the quality. And again, I'm not talking about the staff and the people that work hard every day, but just the system that's there that is
7: clearly broken let's hope so um i think that we we certainly need this jolt of some sort um and some you you did suggest um options the universal health care system works but look at um again home and community care long-term care that's a mix of private not-for-profit and public people seem comfortable with that um i don't see why we have to Um, keep all our hospitals, um, only public, for example.
0: So you think there is room for the private discussion? Although, you know, as soon as you bring that up, people start screaming, but again, these are, this is unsustainable.
7: Uh, Absolutely. It's, it's not a panacea. It it won't fix everything. And you don't, it doesn't um, have to be one extreme or the other either. Absolutely. And, And you look at other countries, um, Britain, France, Germany where they actually have less um, out-of-pocket spending than we do, they have uh, private options. Um, so it's, it's nothing to be afraid of. The, the big thing is, and you've, many, I'm sure your guests have said the same thing, the United States is not you know the direction we want to go in. So just mm-hmm. when you say when you want to have some private options, you say, okay, yeah. we're, we want to be like the United States. No one who's sane at all would, would uh, suggest that. But I think it's worth um, opening that discussion. Dr. James Teason with us, Director, Master of Health
0: Administration, Community Care, and Associate Professor, Ted Rogers School of Management at Ryerson. James, thanks for the time
7: and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too, and thanks so much for the opportunity.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Good afternoon, Scott. Hope you are well. I am well. How are you? I'm doing very well. I'm on a, uh, and we're going to play this for the last word. I was so uh, wound up today and so much animation, I knocked the glass right off my desk, which you can hear coming up in the last word. Uh, See, talking, to I, Peach- just
9: did that. I j- literally, I was going downstairs to get ready for the show, and for the first time in the year and the three quarters happened to bump something and dump the entire coffee all over everything. I don't, it, it must <laughs> don't be going around today or something. I don't know what.
0: It's bad enough when it happens at the studio at work, but when it happens in your own house, it's even worse. Uh, so we've been banging the bejeebers out of this all day, and I really think, and it started for me with PJ's uh, a PJ, uh, PJ Markhani's column in the Hamilton spec, Uh, talking about uh, just the change in this whole COVID-19 perception. I think the debate is changing. I think this has moved from... Um, it's not about the danger of COVID-19 and you getting it and what's going to happen to you. It's about the dangers of a woefully inadequate healthcare system that is in need of a, uh, a funding template review. Uh, And I think we're talking about try, you know, berating the last five to 10% to get them vaccinated. And I'm all for that. Let's get them vaccinated, but more lockdowns, uh, mandatory vaccines. The feds want the provinces to have mandatory vaccines. What we're not focusing on they're not protecting us from covid-19 anymore because you get it and you're fine if you're fully vaccinated i'm proof of that uh what we're doing here is we're protecting an extremely fragile uh health system which we all brag about but is riddled with holes and on its knees at this point because we've been running it wide open for two years and the people, the great workers, the men and women are completely wiped out. They're exhausted. And instead of focusing on a new funding formula to fix this, because it used to be 50-50 for the provinces and the feds, now it's like 25% from the feds. Instead of talking about that, we're like, we need to be more like, we even more vaccination. You're not, you know, even if you get a hundred percent people vaccinated you're not going to fix the health care system has the discussion changed
9: so okay so we're we're on the same wavelength as firing spilling beverages and now it turns out we're on the same wavelength because the first thing we're talking about on the show tonight is this very topic. i think it's changed scott i think it's changed but here's one of the places where it's changed and this is what we're going to talk about and when i say this there are some people who may need the health care system because they're going to go into cardiac arrest when i say this but there is an increasing, if you look at a new poll that's out, a recently new poll, recently new poll, there is an increasing number of Canadians who are saying they are open to the concept of having more private health care, more not just relying on the public system and dumping extraordinary billions in saying, well, if we pay a hundred billion, it's going to be okay, but two hundred billion, it'll be even better because, Canada spends per capita among the highest in the developed world on healthcare, and our system before least. COVID was with longer waiting times than most people and has other problems. And so now people are saying maybe it's time to consider the alternative and open our thoughts hey. to the idea that, hey, maybe if we say we can allow private health care, Some of the people who are waiting in line who will still pay their health care taxes, they don't get out of it, but now want to pay extra, they'll get out of the line and make the line shorter for those who are using the public system. I know it runs into a sacred cow in this country, but maybe this is the event that's finally making us say, you know, our health care system just can't work the way it's always worked.
0: We just had this discussion with Dr. Dr. James Teason, Director, Master of Health Administration, Community Care uh, Ryerson, and he said the same thing. Everybody says as soon as you uh, uh, say money or privatization, that you're immediately uh, going to go like the United States, and that is the opposite extreme. That is the worst thing you could add to this discussion because it goes nowhere. That's not what we're talking about here. It's a balance, you know, in order to protect what is now a unsustainable. Sustainable system.
9: Well, let me ask a question, Scott. Um, we allow people who uh who pay their taxes for education to still pay extra, extra to send their kids to private school. They don't get to not pay the education tax. And
0: they don't use that as
9: a credit, yeah. But they you get nothing for it. You but you pay it and you pay extra and you go. We pay if you are a taxpayer, you are paying for public transit. I know you pay fares if you ride, but as part of your taxes, you're also paying taxes for public transit, even though you may pay extra to buy a car and pay for gas and insurance and everything else. You go down the list. You may you may be a golfer who is a member of a club who pays extra, but you're paying in your taxes to pay for the municipal golf courses in this city. Why Why are we okay with all those other things that we say, as long as you pay your share, go and do whatever you want, I don't care and then all of a sudden when it comes to medicine we say no you can't do that that'll destroy everything and there and look there may be a good argument there but i just think that the that good argument may have a little bit of an other argument now because we're seeing the shape the shape of our healthcare system and saying something has to change maybe what we're talking about right now isn't it but something has to change and i'm not sure that simply yeah. pouring billions more that we're already so far in debt i don't think we have those billions more to just randomly dump in there. And where just because you have billions more, Scott, you said it. The doctors and nurses and everyone else, they're exhausted. If you suddenly throw billions more, do you suddenly, by magic, have billions or tons more doctors appear? Like there's challenges to this system, and we have to find something, I think, beyond the status quo that we've always just argued. Whether it's privatization, I don't know, but it's a discussion I think worth having.
0: It seems that whenever we have the discussion, we're so stuck up about you know how we have the greatest system in the world. It's like we're totally we're still stuck in the fifties. We still think that this is all affordable. I mean, we're totally neglecting the fact that you got to line up for stuff, and and now things are being canceled because of a global pandemic that everybody's going through. So it's amazing that we still think this is so great, yet it's full of holes. And well, there you it's go.
9: great until. You're one of the people, tens of thousands of people who are waiting for some sort of procedure, and you're being told, we can't get to you. And so if you, Scott, needed a knee replacement, and I said, hey, if you want to pay $20,000 of your own money to go and get a knee replacement, go ahead. Mm, Are people going to freak out about that? Maybe but then that's one person out of the line waiting that moves everyone else up closer to the front of the line to get their public yeah. health system knee replacement done. I, I, I don't know. Uh, it, 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 it doesn't seem to me as complicated as it used to, but maybe for others it still does.
0: Thank you to Ben. And who else is in there? Liz and Dave and Lisa for producing. As always, we usually leave it to you, but this time we're going to leave the last word to my glass, which I bowled off the desk in my passionate interview. They remember the 1950s, but forget the 70s, 80s, 90s, and everything everything that came after that.